Thank you. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. You notice the beautiful tree when you came in this morning in the foyer and then up here. Thank the teenagers for going and cutting them last weekend and getting them set up. We're going to look in John chapter 1. Just last week we did an introduction to the book of John. We're going to do a real brief review of a couple things that we talked about last week as we jump into this gospel. And then we're going to look at this first paragraph today. Uh, John is a, is, is a wonderful writer in the sense that his sentences are just straightforward, succinct statements. The Apostle Paul is more like an attorney, and he delves into all this extra thought by the Holy Spirit as he writes his sentences. But when John writes a sentence for us, when John gives us a paragraph, it's just boom, it's right there. And we've got the message. And what we'll see as we go through the book of John, that that just holds true through the whole study. I want you to just look with me at this first paragraph, and then we'll look to the Lord in a word of prayer and ask his blessing on the word. It says, in the beginning. Mike read to us this morning, Genesis 1, verse 1. How did that begin? In the beginning. In the beginning, the word was. The word was with God, and the Word was God. He, notice that masculine pronoun related to the Word, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Notice the comprehensive nature of that statement. And then this next phrase essentially could be, could, could be worded this way. And without him, nothing that has come into existence came into existence. So think about what he's saying. All things were made through him. And without him, without his creative activity, nothing, nothing that has come into existence came into existence. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, I thank you that you have come into the world that the eternal word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that you have brought to us both light and life. Later in this book, you said to us, Lord Jesus, the thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. But I am come that you might have life. And having life might have it more abundantly. Thank you, Lord. Bless us in your word this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take these verses that we have read, that you would open them to our understanding, and that you would help us, Father, to understand not only the truth, but also how it relates then to what we believe and how we live. We pray, Holy Spirit, in your name. 
Amen. Okay. So as we've looked at the book of John, let's just run real quickly through some slides and do a little bit of a review of some of what we talked about last week when we were talking about the Gospel of John. We talked about some of the key words that we're going to see repeated all through this book. And I want you to notice we talked about love, God so loved the world, and Genesis, or excuse me, Genesis, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. We saw the word light. We see the word light here in what we've already uh, read, that he brought light. And the darkness hasn't overcome the light. He is the light of the world. We, we see the word truth. And we'll see this time and time again in the book of John where Jesus will say things like, I am the truth. And the truth will set you free. We also see the concept of believe. More than any other book in the Bible, the book of John stresses this response. In order to not perish, you must believe. Now, these key words are always set in a contrast. So in the contrast, we'll see God is love, but then we'll also see this word hate. We'll see that word hate repeated, and we'll see that how, how hatred comes from the devil and from Satan. And how can we love our brother? Uh, you know, if God is in us, then we naturally love our brother. But if we hate our brother, it is a revelation to us that God is not within us. And so we see that relationship. We see light and we see darkness. We see truth and we see lies. And we see belief. And not unbelief. We see belief set in contract to rejection. To believe and receive the gospel is one thing. The opposite of that is when I hear the message and I hear the voice of the Spirit of God and He calls out to me. If I do not believe it, then what I do is I turn and reject it. And so this is the continual contrast that we will see in the book of John. And we will see that play out in front of us. When we looked at the outline, we talked about how John 20 verse 31 is the purpose statement. It comes towards the end of the book. Let me show you this. The verse was this. Now, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these ones are written, here's the purpose, so that you may believe. And what are we to believe? That this person, Jesus, is first of all the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the chosen one. He is the Messiah sent from God. And as the Christ, he is the Son of God. And then by believing that message, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, we may have life in his name. And so there again you see this word, believe. And the concept of belief. So in that outline, what we see is, first of all, the purpose statement that we just looked at. And then we see in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, that we are beginning to study, we, three, we see three sentences that serve as a prologue to the book. Not three sentences, three paragraphs. And these three paragraphs give us a thesis statement. And they tell us about Jesus' person. Who is he? Remember Jesus asked the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
And Peter says in answer to that question for all the other apostles, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Exactly what we see in John 20, verse 31. And so we see this thesis statement developed, and then we see the body of the book, which is supporting evidence to this claim of Jesus is that he is God, come in the flesh. <clears throat> and then in chapter 21, we see an epilogue. And we see what happens after the resurrection. We see just a little bit again, a few events that the Holy Spirit wants us to have that help us understand the purpose and the mission of this God-man, Jesus Christ. John's method, we talked about the Holy Spirit, then selected signs that signify Jesus' person. And then by believing in who he is, that secures salvation for us by faith. And so there are seven selected signs, and there are seven supporting self-declarations where Jesus says, I am. And we'll look at one of them a little bit later in the message today. But there are seven selected miracles that help us understand the truth that we are seeing, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In this prologue that we are studying, there are parallel statements. In the first verses that we read, it tells us, in the beginning, the Word was. The second statement, it says, the Word was with God. And then it says, the Word was God. Later in this prologue, in the third paragraph, there will be other statements that relate to these three. So in the beginning, the Word was, and what happens? The Word became flesh, and He dwells among us. So this Word that was in the beginning, that always was, becomes flesh. And then this Word that was with God, now is with us. He dwells among us. And then this Word that was God, reveals His glory. And so we see the very glory of God in the person of Jesus. Now, where are we going today? We are going to talk about the person of Jesus. Who is he? Who is he? Among evangelical, born-again people who love and know the Word of God, there is a strong consensus on this. If I ask you who is Jesus, you'll say... He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and you know what you mean by that. But in the world, and in other branches of the church, or Christendom, there's all kinds of other beliefs, who this Jesus is. That's always been the case. In the early centuries, uh, post-apostolic era, now think with me for a minute, when I use the word post-apostolic, who were the apostles? You know who they were? They were 12 guys who went with Jesus while he was alive. Jesus dies for us on the cross. He is buried and he rises again. And then he ascends to the Father. And he sends the Holy Spirit who inhabits and dwells these men, these apostles, with specific power to proclaim his message. 
and they live out the rest of their lives. Only one of them dies of natural causes. It is this man, the Apostle John. The rest of them are martyred for their faith. Many in very brutal ways. Um, there was no safeguard in the Roman culture against cruel and unusual punishment. So the more cruel and unusual you could come up with, that was a good thing in Rome. So guys like Thomas got taken to the top of a pyramid, his feet tied together, and a donkey was taken up there. His hands were tied behind his back, and they spanked the donkey on the rear, and the donkey took off down the pyramid, and the whole way down the pyramid, poor Thomas's brains were bashed out on every rock as he went. By the time he got to the bottom, he was dead. And so all these men die for their testimony of Jesus. By around 90 A.D., give or take a couple of years, they're all gone. We then get into what's called the post-apostolic period, last couple hundred years. And all of a sudden, these guys are gone. The scriptures are being put together for us. The church is forming, and there's much debate about what the apostles And Jesus were all about and what they meant by what they said. And so there's all this conflict. During that time, there were various universal church councils from which we have what are called the creeds. Those creeds are very important. I don't know if you've ever read them. If you haven't, you should look them up and read them. They are important statements concerning the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah. That Christians from all over the known world at that time came together and formulated. They are not perfect, nor are they replacements for Scripture. But they sure laid a strong foundation for what the Scripture is teaching. Some of these conflicts are the same today as they were then. Uh, Let me run through them real quick. There was a guy named Apollinarius. He became the bishop of Laodicea. Now, how do you know the church at Laodicea? They're mentioned in the book of Revelation, aren't they? They're the ones that God wanted to puke out of his mouth. But he became the bishop of Laodicea in like 300-something. And Apollinarius was pretty well-known and kind of a popular guy. Um, if uh, he was alive today, I'm sure he'd have been on one of the Christian network, uh, uh, cable networks, and you know he'd, he'd been one of those big guys. And uh, yet he taught that this person, Jesus, was an individual who had a human body, but then his mind and his spirit were deity. So... There was a real division there in the way he's thinking about it. He had a human body, but his mind and spirit are not human in any way. They are deity. The church examines what he's teaching, and they say, eh, that really doesn't give us a fully orbed picture of what the New Testament is saying about who this guy is. Now, I'm not going to give you a test on these people, because I'm sure you're not going to remember them. Another guy was a guy named Nestorius. And Nestorianism, there again, screws it all up because they want to just say, okay, then what we had to have was there was one person, but inside this one person 
is two people. So it's kind of like schizophrenia. There's two people in there. One is God and one is man. But it's just one person. There again, the church looked at it and said, no, that doesn't really fit the bill. A guy named Eutychius teaches this belief called monophysitism. It says, okay, then this is just a completely different kind of being. He's not man. He's not God. He's just something new. There again, the church examined and said, no, nah, that's not what the New Testament teaches. A guy named Arius He comes from a city called Alexandria, which is in Egypt, and it was a learning center of the ancient world, and he was a pastor. There were 12 churches in Alexandria. He was a pastor of one of those churches. Very popular teacher. Arianism taught that Jesus was a created being. He did not always exist, but God the Father brought him into being and created him. So when you hear Arianism... What you immediately think of is KKK white supremacy, right? Because that's the way we think of that word today. But when you think about it theologically, Arianism is not white supremacy. When we think about it theologically, this guy named Arius from the 300s was teaching a belief that became known as Arianism that says Jesus was a created being. So what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about any of this stuff? Who is Jesus? In this prologue that we are reading, that we are studying, there are some very clear statements about the person of Jesus. We're going to examine them. And where we're going in this paragraph is we're going to talk about Jesus' person, and I want you just to notice three things today. Number one, we're going to talk about his identity. Who is he? In the beginning, the Word <coughs> was his identity. He is called here the Word. We're going to talk about his existence. Now it says in the beginning, and then it says what? All things were made by him. All things. And so we see his existence that he predates the earth and all things. So in one way, we could say Jesus is older than the dirt, right? You say you're older than dirt. Jesus is older than dirt, right? His existence predates everything that came into existence. This answers the teaching of a guy like Arius. The third thing is we will see his activity. We see him creating. So we're going to look at these three things this morning quickly, and we're going to look at these statements that relate to us the person of Jesus. Who is he? Think with me, first of all, about his identity. His identity is he is the Word. The Word. To us, that seems kind of abstract. I doubt if any of you would name your child the Word or Word. What does that mean? Why does the Holy Spirit tell us that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, in eternity past, is known by the identity, the Word? What does that mean? Okay, it's the Greek word, logos. Logos. I'm sure you've heard of English words that come from this concept. A word like logic. 
logic. So we could think about logos is a concept that a word, logos, articulates thought. If I'm sitting in my easy chair, and I am deep in thought, and I have a furrowed brow, and um, I'm just sitting there thinking. Amy has no idea what's going on in my head until what? I speak a word. And then that word or series of words gives articulation to unseen thought. And in this way, God is revealing himself to us through Jesus, giving articulation to what we could never know unless God told us. And so he is the word. And so a word articulates thought. It expresses or it communicates. It brings into being what we could never know. And so in this sense, when we think about Jesus as the Logos, he is the revealer of the unseen God. He is the revealer of the unseen God. God didn't leave it to us to dream it up, to try to discover it, to invent it. No, he initiated communication to man by revealing himself, and he has done so in word. You see in the New Testament many times a relationship between the written word and the living word, Jesus Christ. For instance, in the book of Hebrews, it says this. The word of God, the word of God is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of your soul and of your spirit and to the joints and the marrow and it discerns the thoughts and intents of your heart. When you say that's true, you sit down with the Bible and you start reading it, all of a sudden God is showing you exactly what you know about yourself. It discerns, it teaches. The Word of God is living and active. And then the next verse says this, Neither is any created thing hidden from his sight. So the written word and the living word coalesce. And so we also see this in the book of Revelation. There again, Jesus says of himself, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Now think with me of an Alpha. An Alpha is a Greek letter. Alpha looks like the fish. Okay, and it is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. The omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. Kind of looks like a W, but it's like the O. It's a vowel. Alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. Every word that you speak is formed by putting what together? Letters. Every word that you think comes from taking all the letters that are out there, putting them together into words, 
And so what he's saying here, in a very real way, the word of God is all encompassing as to the articulation of the fullness of the knowledge and wisdom of God. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. The Apostle Paul says it a little bit differently in the book of Colossians. In chapter 1, verse 15, this really dovetails with what we're studying in John. Notice what this verse says. He is the image of the God you cannot see. God is invisible, but Jesus is the image of this God that you cannot see, and he is the firstborn over all creation. We'll talk about that phrase, not today, but another time, because this is what Arius does, is he takes that phrase and he builds a doctrine about Jesus coming into existence from that phrase. And I'll explain to you later why that does not mean that. But anyway, he is the image of the invisible God. And then it says this, exactly what it says in John. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, what you can see and what you cannot see whether it be a throne or a dominion or a ruler or an authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And what? By him, everything continues. All things hold together. Notice this word, image. Oh, do you remember when we were going in the catechism and we were talking about one of the commandments? We are not to make a what? A graven image. Why are we not to make a graven image? Because it wouldn't depict who Jesus is. Or who God is. The image of God is who? Jesus. He is the image. And so what we see here, he is the image of the invisible God. Now that is an interesting word, image. It is the word... I thought I had another screen with that on it. I guess I don't. Um, it is the word icon. Icon, in the Greek language, it's E-I-K-O-N, in transliteration, not in the Greek alphabet. Icon, or we would say it, maybe we would spell the word I-C-O-N. Now, when I say the word icon, if you're Greek Orthodox, you think about that word theologically. But we don't. In fact, in our culture, if I say the word icon, especially if you're a young person, what are you thinking about? What's on your desktop? It's an icon, isn't it? Now, if I... I don't know if I can do this. I better not do that. I'll screw up my program by escaping. I was going to go to my desktop, but I better not do that. If I click on an icon, it takes me somewhere. The icon is a representation... It is an image of a bigger reality. And by clicking on that icon, I can walk through a portal into knowledge and experience that I cannot have until I go through that icon. In a similar way, Jesus is the icon of God. By believing in him, and I don't want to make this trite and, and silly, but by clicking on him, by believing in him, by coming to him, I then have access to everything that God is. And so he is the image of the invisible God. 
He's the firstborn over all creation. Well, I did do something that screwed up something. Hold on a second. Station break. Oh, I did go there. And now I don't need it. I'll go back. Okay. Colossians 1. Let's think about his existence. That's his identity. He is the Word. And he is the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, what do we see about his existence? Oh, I've got to turn this back on. What do we see about his existence? We see this word, arche. It means beginning. And that word expresses continuous, timeless existence. It's talking about eternity past. In the beginning. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the word. And we see that this expresses a continuous, timeless existence. So that Jesus was in the beginning, before the beginning was. And then he brought into being that which is. There are many places that we could go in the Bible to support this truth. I'm just going to go to one this morning. It's in the gospel that we are studying, and it's in John 8. In John 8, Jesus is having a long discussion with the Jews of his days, of his day, that are really ticked off at him because of what he's saying. And they're talking about Abraham. And he says to them, Your father Abraham was overjoyed to see my day. Now, let's just think, before you continue to read, think about what he's saying there. Abraham, who lived hundreds of years before Jesus is saying these words, and hundreds of years before Jesus is saying these words, this guy he's talking about, Abraham, was buried. And his body's in the dirt, and his body has decayed. And yet Jesus says of that man, he was overjoyed to see my day. And what is his day? The word becoming flesh. So Abraham is, now think about this. This really helps us understand that this concept that is sometimes taught that we call in the intermediate state, soul sleep. Now, when someone dies, their spirit is also resting in the grave until the resurrection is not in the Bible. Because what do we see here? Abraham's body went into the dirt. But where is Abraham? He is in a place where he knows what's going on, not only there, also here. He knows what's going on there. He sees Jesus stepping off his throne and getting ready to crawl into the womb of a young maiden. And he's like overjoyed. And he sees the day. So he is aware, consciously aware, and rejoicing. He has emotion. He is rejoicing to see the day of Jesus. He saw it and rejoiced. The Jews said, you are not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? And what does he say? I assure you, 
Before Abraham was, notice the word was, I am. Now, we're going to see this self-claim of Jesus seven times in this gospel, he says, I am. That clearly relates, as I said last week, to the book of Exodus in chapter 3. When Moses meets God at the burning bush, and at the burning bush, Moses says, when I go to these people and I tell them you're going to let them go from slavery, I better tell them who sent me. So i got to give them this. Who, who sent me? Who are you, God? He says, I am Jehovah. I am what? T- tell them I am that I am. That I am that I am sent you. And Jesus is here saying, I am. I have always been. I always will be. And I am always in the present. He's not 50 years old on earth. He's in his 30s. I think of that as a young man now. I didn't always think of that as a young man, but I do now. Right? He's a young man. And he says, I've seen Abraham. And Abraham rejoiced when I was born. This speaks of the existence, the eternal existence of God. Notice with me his activity. Number one, we see his activity as creator. He is creating light and life. Notice this. He is creating all things. Creation is set forth in this paragraph that we are studying. I want you to notice this. Creation is set forth as one event, not a continual process. He made it. He made it. And God is picturing in this passage one event. Now, this truth claim we read here that Mike read to you this morning might well conflict with your worldview if you were educated by just the secular naturalists of our day. But here in this passage and in the book of Genesis, God is instructing us about how things started. He is telling us about first things. He is telling us about creation. And what you notice here and in Genesis and in every other place in the Scripture where God talks about how things came into being, He talks about direct creation. Direct. That He spoke and it happened. We do not see steered natural processes and we do not see random chance. We see God speaking, the Word speaking. And immediately things happen. This might bring you to a crisis point. And the crisis point that it brings you to is this. Am I going to trust the Bible to be true when people tell me something different. 
And if you're in that crisis point, I'm not in any way mocking you or making little of that discovery and of that issue for you. But you need to search it out. And you need to think seriously about it because what you believe on creation has a direct bearing on how you view the Word of God. And so I'd encourage you to wrestle through it. If you need some resources to do that, we want to help you with that. It's a big deal. Now, I want to show you something here. Think with me of life and light. Notice in this statement, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. In essence, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, and you start in day 1, and you go to day 6, day 7 is the day God rests, day 1 to day 6, you will see that everything that God does falls into the category of life and light. Light and life. So what's the first thing he does? And God said what? Let there be light. And there was light. God separates light from what? Darkness. God says evening, morning, day one. Later in the week, what does he do? He looks at what he has made and how light has come into the world. And then he says, I want to have life. So he says to the earth, I want you to bring forth green herb and trees. And then he says to the water, I want you to fill up with fish. And then he says to the, to the land, I want there to be animals. And then he finally says, I want to take some dirt and I'm going to mold it together. And I'm going to make another thing that's in my image. In the image of God, he made man, and then he breathed into man the what? Breath of life. And it says he became a living thing. So everything that God does falls into these two categories of light and life. And we need to think about the relationship of life and light. There is a contrast between darkness and light. And we also see that life and light are interrelated. Think about this. Without light... You cannot have what? Life. Without light, you cannot have life. For there to be life, there has to be light. Because life creates the environment in which life can thrive and can flourish. So we see an interrelationship. Also, think with me about darkness. Darkness is kind of intriguing to me. What is darkness? Darkness is intriguing because... It's interesting, on day one, God says in Genesis 1, he says, the light was, remember, good. But does he say anything about the darkness? Does he say the darkness is evil? No. Not at all. Because why? Because everything is good. At that point in creation, everything is good. So when we think about light and darkness, we shouldn't think that darkness is always bad. Darkness is a part of the created order in which we live. In fact, we need darkness. I don't know about you, but I would not like to live in Alaska where I would work for 24 hours a day for six months. And then I'd have to sleep for six months to catch up. Right? I mean, it's really nice to have that divided up where we have day and night. Because we work during the day and then we sleep at night. And so darkness gives us cycles to our life. 
And it enables us to rest so that we can be creative. And so darkness is very important in the creation now, but not always because in the millennial kingdom, it tells us then that there will be no what? There will be no night. There will be no night. So darkness and light, there is a specific inner relationship to them. Another thing that's interesting, as I thought about this, and I've got to be careful here because I don't want to be hung as a heretic if I'm wrong. But I'll still expound my thought here. In Genesis 1, 1 and 2, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. When he makes it, it was formless, which just means it's not in a finished state, and it is void or it is empty. And then it says darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the darkness. In the wording, it does not seem that God actively creates the darkness. Rather, it seems that darkness exists in the void of light. So when there is not light, there is darkness. It's more of a passive thing. And we'll talk about that in another minute when we come back to some concepts on this. Let's think about life for a minute. What else did I have on this screen? Okay, let's think about life. Light and life. Now, this is an interesting word. There are two Greek words that express the concept of life. One is the word bios. The other is the Greek word zoe. Now, you can see the word bios in a word like biology. Biology. The study of living things. Life. And then you can also see zoe in a word like zoology. Or you go to the what? The zoo. You don't go to the zoo to see bios. You go to the zoo to see zoe. Here's the difference. Life, in this sense, bios, is a living thing, but it's a plant as well as an animal. Zoology, or zoo, you go to see what? Animal life. By the, by the way, I think it was the, the, the zoo in Copenhagen decided, and that's not the chewy stuff you put in your mouth. That is a place on the planet. But the zoo in Copenhagen once actually did an exhibit where they put men in the zoo. They put a man and woman in a cage, and I won't go into that whole thing. It was an interesting experiment, but anyway. So, zoology. Now, what's the difference? Here's what I want to think about. When we talk about Zoe, by the way, this is what it is. He is Zoe. In him is life. Animate life. Sentient thought. Now here's the distinction. I can talk to my dog. I can talk to my horse. I can talk to you. And we relate. Now, my dog relates to me different than my kids or my wife. 
but I can still talk to my dog. I do it all the time, right? I talk to my horse. There's relationship. There's sentient life, animate life. But I don't do the Pocahontas thing and go talk to Grandma Willow, right? Why? There is not sentient life in trees, despite what our world is saying today. It's a different kind of life. Sentient thought, animate life comes from God because He is life. And so in him is life, and the life is the light of men. And he breathes into men, and he breathes the light of life. In Isaiah 9, we think about Christmas, it says this. This is in the Isaiah prophecy concerning the Messiah. The people who were walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those and the light has dawned on those who live in a land of darkness. Light wins, doesn't it? It always wins. Now, it doesn't always win the way we think it should win or the way, you know, it seems like light would win, but light always wins. I love the illustration that Del Tackett uses in the Truth Project about light. Think with me about this room here and this door. We're out here, and let's say it's completely dark, all the lights are off, and it's as dark as it can get. And this room is dark, and here's the crisis point. And in this room, the light is on. This is the battle point. The light will always overcome the darkness. If I open this door, and this is dark, what happens? Does the darkness invade the light and overcome the light? What happens? The light overcomes the darkness. It always does. The light always wins. And so the light has come into the world to bring us life. Think about how that relates to Christmas. Just even think about the timing of when we celebrate Christmas. What time of year is it? The darkest time of year. And how do we always celebrate Christmas? We always do it with what? Lights and lots of them. And we do it with life, the evergreen tree. Why? Because Jesus has come, and he is light, and he is life. And we see that in the story with the star. We see the angels coming on the mountainside in a dark night and speaking to the shepherds, and suddenly a great light. A great what happens? A great light shines all around them. It is life and light. You know, when Jesus came, he was literally invading enemy territory. Wasn't he? He's coming into the darkness. He is literally invading enemy territory. And yet Jesus and the Godhead had supreme confidence, absolute certainty that they would win. They were not afraid in any way. That absolute certainty is revealed in the prophetic declarations concerning who Jesus is. And I want to draw a contrast. 
On June 6, 1944, we have a day that's called D-Day. The day in which American, British, some French resistance and others invade fortress Europe, invade enemy territory in a place called Normandy on France, in France, on their way to conquering the darkness of Nazism. They land at places like Sword, Juno, Gold. Those were the spearheaded names for the beaches, the code words for the beaches that the British land on. Omaha and Utah, you've heard of those beaches before. Inland, there are paratroopers and glider-borne forces. That invasion could have taken place at several different locations on this long coast. The Germans are preparing for that invasion. They are putting everything they have into being ready for it, and yet over hundreds of miles they are not sure where it will come. Hitler knew it was coming, but he does not know where, he does not know when, he does not know how. He doesn't know if it will be at a high tide, he doesn't know if it will be at first light. He doesn't know if it will be in the night. He doesn't know. No one knew. Except a very small group of individuals who guarded that secret with everything that was in them. The details of Operation Overlord were carefully and carefully, the most carefully guarded secret at the time. Its success depended on secrecy, on deception, and on decoy. They make all these phony armies all across England with blow-up tanks, you know, like out of rubber and other things. They make artillery pieces out of telephone poles. They stage all kinds of phony communications, deception and decoy in every way. As it's getting close, on May 15th, there was a meeting with General Eisenhower and some of the other central planners expanding the knowledge to the next echelon of people that now need to know. There was an admiral there. And in that meeting he said this, as we took our seats, the room was hushed and the tension was palpable. It seemed to most of us that the proper meshing of so many gears would need nothing less than divine providence. A failure at one point would mean disaster everywhere. Everyone in the room was aware of the gravity of the moment. Eisenhower then spoke. He said, I want to tell you one thing. I consider it the duty of anyone in this room who can see a flaw in this plan to speak now. They load the ships. It gets recalled by storms. A break is projected. They wonder, will it be enough time? A break in these storms? Can we get the men on shore? Can we get them, get enough material there to support them? Will we have enough open air so that we can drop bombs and and the air forces can fly. And Eisenhower is struggling with it and the weight of the world is on his shoulders and finally he says, 
Okay, we go. But he wrote a letter. He made a press release and it said these words. Our landings have failed and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was best on the best information available. The troops, the air, the Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If there is any fault or blame it attaches, that attaches to the attempt, it is mine and mine alone. And he had it ready to go. And as we know, the landings did not fail. But if you consider God's invasion of his creation, he did not attempt in any way to hide it. In fact, he said hundreds of years before, when he comes, he will be born in Bethlehem of Judah. When he comes, he will be the son of the king, David. He gives all these facts. The night that he comes, he sends an angel and an angelic host to shepherds on a hill. I guarantee there are other angels who are watching, and they're from the other side. And the angel says to the shepherds, you want to find him? Go to Bethlehem. And this child will be wrapped in swaddling clothes and he will be lying in a manger. Satan throws everything he can at him to have him killed by Herod. But it is unsuccessful. When God came, light and life overcame darkness and God was not the least worried that he would win. But his winning doesn't always look the way we think winning would look. Luther called it theology of the cross versus theology of glory. Because how did Jesus win? By being nailed to a cross. By dying. How do his followers win? Is it by being accepted by the culture and being lauded and praised and patted on the back? No, Jesus said what? If they hated me, they'll hate you. If they didn't receive me, they won't receive you. So what does winning look like? It may look like Thomas getting drugged by a donkey off a pyramid. But light wins. It always does. So light has come. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us to perish in our sin, although we surely deserve it. You have come that we might have life. Holy Spirit, we need you. Just as in that creative week when it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would hover in this place that you would touch hearts, that, Holy Spirit, you would bring life. And so we proclaim Christ in your name.